of three, here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to yell out as loud as you can your favorite Thanksgiving food, okay? Ready? Your favorite Thanksgiving food. That's what we're going for, okay? One, two, three, go. Oh, that's mine too. That's my favorite. I like that. That's good. Uh, I, I love Thanksgiving. You know, I had some people that were, were in the teen group, and they were like, let's just skip over Thanksgiving and get right to Christmas. But, you know, I love Thanksgiving. I love the time. What I really love about it is that you get to be with your family friends. You get to eat a lot of food, and you get to kind of reflect on all that God has done and give him the thanks for it. And when you do that, when you start thanking God and you start taking time to actually be grateful, what happens is you see that God is everywhere and that he's directing so many parts of our life. And what we see in our David series is the same thing. We see God's plan work time after time after time. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And I love King David because what it's about is not showing a perfect King David. What it is is about showing a perfect God who worked, who guided, and who leads. And, you know, tonight the question we come back with David is he's now at another crossroads. And it's, David, are you going to follow God or are you going to follow yourself, follow your own understanding? And that's where we're going to get time and time again. It shows the true nature of human life that there's going to be different times where we're going to have to decide once again, are we following after God or are we following after ourselves? And just, just for a disclaimer, my voice is very weird tonight, so I might be coughing at random times. I might even have a voice crack. I know I did this morning. So if I, anything weird happens with my voice, just be ready for it, okay? But we're going to get through, and God's good. Uh, let's start off with a word of prayer, and we'll dive right into it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our God. Lord, there's so much going on in the world today, and there's so much going on in each person's lives here today. Lord, the best thing going on is that we have a God who loves us and cares about us. And Lord, that we get to be in your house and we get to worship you. We get to learn about you. Lord, I pray that you bless this time. I pray that the Holy Spirit works in hearts. I pray that we see through David, through his life, how amazing of a God we serve. Pray all this in your precious holy name. Amen. All right, so here's what I want to do. I don't know if you've ever been called this, but it's usually a compliment. Have you ever been called a detailed-oriented person? You're a person who looks at the small things. You care about the small things. You care about those small little details. You don't want to skip over it. You want to make sure you're focused on those. Well, what I want to show us is a few examples of people who had details, who really cared about the details. Here with that next one. See, all right, so I don't know if you've seen this before. This is, I'm not going to pronounce this right, the La Pieta by Michelangelo. And it's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful sculptures ever made. It is so detailed. And what it, what it is, is it's right after Jesus died on the cross and his mom, Mary, comes and holds him. And you can kind of see the, the emotion uh, in, in Mary. You can see, I mean, this guy detailed sculpted this. If I got a sculpture and put it right before you and I said, make that, it's going to first take a long time. And you're probably not going to be able to do it. There's so much detail in that. Now look at the next picture. There's not as much detail in that. that that's called, that's a, a modern photo of a famous soccer player called Ronaldo. I don't know if you ever heard that before. And he got this award, and this guy went and made a statue of him, and they just kind of like threw this together. So let's compare these two. Here with the next slide, Steve. We have... Both of these together, we have this really detailed, like Michelangelo painstakingly went to each detail, and you have this guy that kind of just threw this up there. It's a beautiful, if you ever seen a picture of Ronaldo, he doesn't look like that. All right, hit me with the next one, Steve. All right, this is beautiful. Let me make sure I say the name right. It's the Basilica of St. Vitali in 
Ravina, Italy. And what it is, is it's a mosaic. And, and I'm speaking a little above my, my skill level here, but we, each mosaic, it's a, each is a little piece that's perfectly designed, and they put little piece after little piece after little piece, and all those little pieces, those small details, make something this beautiful. This is, this is art where it's just absolutely amazing. You look at it, and it's kind of breathtaking when you're under it. Like, not only did someone put those up there, but they put small little details and small little pieces on there to make it something really big and momentous. And then here with the next one, Steve. And then we have this, this painting. This is called The Comedian. Uh, and it's by Marizo Catalan. And basically what he did, uh, and I was looking, I was like, I, I don't think I'm wrong, but I was looking, I was like, oh, it's a prank. It's a, it's a joke. I, it's a joke that's worth $120,000, so I don't know if it's a joke, but th- this sold for $120,000. And I was reading an article about it, and it was trying to, like, really hard to make it seem really sophisticated. It's like, if you look, there's a certain curvature that really shows the human difficulty. It's like, no, that's a banana that's duct taped to a wall. Like, there's not much happening there. And what we see here, and and let's look at those two side by side. We see that it's just different. Okay, you see, this guy just literally duct taped a banana. Just $120,000, so I can't make too much fun of him. But... When you compare these side by side, you see a guy who spent less than a minute, and then you see someone who spent years making this, putting time and effort, multiple people doing that. And my whole point in showing you that here tonight is just that small things matter. And what small things do is they they add up. That's a perfect example, how those little small things started to add up. Small things have a purpose. And if we're not faithful to the small things, we're not going to be faithful to the big things. And what we see tonight is that David really attempts to, to solve a problem. And there's a problem put before him. And what he does is he says, I'm going to try to be efficient and as quick and as cunning and do it what's ever right in my eyes. I think this is the best thing for me to do. And he says, I don't need the details because those are kind of cumbersome. Those, those are tiring. Those are time consuming. But I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do it fast and get the job done. But what we see is that God has details for a reason, and that God has details that matter. God doesn't do anything by accident. We heard that this morning. So our big point today that I want us to focus on is we can see the necessity of following God's detailed directions by analyzing three decisions David made regarding the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's a lot of words, but what it's saying is we have David in the Ark, and we see that God is showing us that you are to follow his detailed directions. And that when you do that, something amazing comes out of it. Let's, let's jump into the context here. David is, is concerned. For, Pastor Corey gave an awesome message last week uh, where we have David. He's just kind of been inaugurated. He's establishing his kingdom. He's bringing everything together. And he has this idea. He says, I'm going to bring what is called the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to bring that back to Israel. Because what happened in 1 Samuel is in 1 Samuel 6, we have the Philistines come by and they take the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, this, this Ark of the Covenant, we'll talk about it later, but it, it holds the presence of God. It shows the presence of God. And it was taken by the Philistines. And then eventually things were going wrong for the Philistines. It wasn't working well. So they went and returned the Ark of the Covenant. But it never made it back home. For years, it was in the house of a man called Abinadab. And actually, it seemed like it was forgotten for a while. We don't see it brought up in Scripture, which means no one was talking about it. 
But now at this point, the Ark of the Covenant has come back. David's kind of getting into his, his right mind once again. He's getting the kingdom together. And he says, it's important. This Ark of the Covenant carries the presence of God. So I should probably have it in the kingdom. It, it was a symbol of holiness. It actually provided blessing for these nations. Whichever nation had it was often blessed. It was also a sign of his covenant relationship with Israel. It was a sign that God was on Israel's side and it was finally being brought home. But we see David makes a decision. He has this good intent, but he makes a decision and he foolishly rushes. If you will, go with me to first, or second Samuel, excuse me, second Samuel verse, or chapter six. Wow, Second Samuel six. There we go, we got it. All right, and we're gonna start in verse one. I wanna just read the first five verses and get what's happened here. It sets up the scene for us. Now remember, David's wanting the ark. That, that's where we're starting. In verse one, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a lot of people. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gabeah and Uzzah in Ohio. The sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. All right, let's stop there. So we see this. This is pretty good. There's good intent happening. David says, I'm bringing the ark home. And he's saying, I'm making God the center of my kingdom. I'm making our relationship with God at the center of everything. It seems good. We see in verse 1, he actually takes an army with him. He takes his his 30,000 men, chosen men of Israel. He takes them with him, and he goes to what's called, in verse 2, Baal Judah. I think I have a map up there. Perfect. Okay, well, what's happening here, this actually shows all of the, the, the travels that the Ark of the Covenant went. So it was originally with the Philistines in Beth Shemesh, but then eventually they dropped it off, and they said, we don't want this anymore. We're going to drop it off in Baal Judah, or what could also be known as Kareth Jerium. And that's where it was staying. And now David says, I'm coming to pick it up from Kareth Jerium, Baal Judah, same place. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to bring it back home to Jerusalem. So that's what's happening. They're going to the house of Abinadab, and they're picking it up. That's verse 2. Now, verse 3, very interesting. Say they got this fancy new cart, and they got this cart, and they put the ark on top of it. And Abinadab's sons come to help, and he has two sons. He has Ohio and Uzzah. And Ohio goes in the front to kind of direct the cart, and Uzzah goes in the back. And that, that's verse four. Then verse five, we just see that the people are rejoicing. It's a happy time. The Ark of the Covenant is back. And they're saying we're gonna have the Ark back in no time and the people are ready to have God's presence return. And when, when you're looking at it, you're not looking at the details at the moment, you're just looking at the big picture of the text and we see it's like, oh, this seems good. Good job, David. Like you had good intent. You, you brought the Ark. You're making God the center. Uh, you're really being a man after, after God's own heart. But what we have to look at is, is the hidden details that happen here. I say hidden in, in quotation marks. It's not hidden at all. It's right there in Scripture. But we see that David often in this story overlooks these small little details. Often when I'm reading it, just as, as a first time reading it, I overlook this small detail. Let's, let's dive into it. We see that there were instructions that were clear as day that David was supposed to follow, but he didn't. And, and what we see is, is we look at David and we see like, oh, this is really good intent. He wants to bring that ark back. 
But what we see is that David did not consult God in any of this. And, and, and what we see time and time again in David's life is scripture is very clear. There's times where David prays the Lord, worships the Lord, writes a psalm about it. When he's doing that, that means he's actually seeking what God wants him to do. Right now, he is not consulting God at any point. And you say, well, Miles, what's so bad about bringing the Ark of the Covenant? It doesn't seem like such a, a big deal. But we see that he didn't trust God's way of doing it. He said, I have a really good way, and we can do this nice and fast. And what we also say is that David also wanted, and, and, and not necessarily selfishly, but he wanted the political security and, and the blessing that came from the Ark of the Covenant, kind of rightly so. He wanted that for his kingdom. He didn't want it to stay in, in Karajurim. He wanted to bring it back home. There were, there were some mixed motives here. We got to see the full picture of it, but also those details that really help us see it more. But we see the real hidden detail I want us to see is that he moved the Ark with a cart. And you're all like, cool. What does that mean? Okay, he moved the ark. Woo! All right, now how does this apply to my life? Stay with me, okay? Here, let me, let's look at verse three. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gebeah. And Uzzah in Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. Here's what happened. David tried to do an obedient task in a disobedient manner. Let me say that one more time. He tried to do an obedient task, a good thing, bring that Ark of the Covenant home, but he did it in a disobedient manner. You know, I have this, this um, challenge that I've done with myself since I was like a kid. One of my jobs at home, one of my chores, was if my mom went to the grocery store, I was to bring the groceries in. And we, it, it, we were at a small little house. The car was right there. We didn't have a garage, but the car was close to the front door. But I had this challenge. I said, there might be maybe 50 bags in there, but my challenge is, is that I'm only gonna take one trip and it's only gonna take me one trip to get all of these bags into the house. And I, I, I've done it since I was seven. I still do it now. You can ask my wife. I'm like trying to hold them all. And what I do is I have a technique. You kind of line up your entire arm with the bags and you kind of wrap it around your finger so you lose circulation. That means you're doing it the right way. And then you get everything together. You have bags draped all over you. You're holding some of them in your teeth. Done that before. And then you're like, I got all the bags. And you would say, Miles, you know you can just walk back and take a second trip. It's like, no, 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 that defeats the whole point. I can get it all in one trip. And I'm in an apartment right now, and sometimes I have to go up the stairs, and I'm like wobbling and teetering, right? But what happened one time is I said, I can carry all of them. I got it. I'm doing it fast. I'm doing it in an expedient manner. I don't have to go back to the car. It's late. It's raining. I can throw it all on my shoulders. But then what happens is that milk jug starts shaking a little bit, and then it falls out, and it explodes, and then you're trying to pick it up with your foot, but then the other bag falls, and then the loaf of bread's gone, and then you have eggs that you forgot about, and you accidentally crush those, and then the whole bag's falling apart, and you can't carry anything, and all you have is a bag left of pickles, and that's all you got. And what I'm saying with that is, is that I had in my head, Miles, you can do this in one trip, make it faster. It might be a little bit difficult, but do it your way. You can get it inside super fast. But then it ends up, when I do things more quickly, and I do it my own way, I open myself up to more mistakes. What we see is David followed something that the Philistines did. When the Philistines took the ark and delivered the ark, they used a cart. And what that shows us is that the Philistines had no care about doing things God's way. And that David actually does exactly the same thing. And what he's doing is he's following to do something expediently rather than obediently. 
David didn't consult God to ask for his directions. And what happened is he ended up doing it incorrectly and against God's plan. All right, now, now stay with me. Let's make sure we understand this. We have to see that God had holy directions. Okay, David had the whole law before him, and he was a king, and he was supposed to know the law. And he, he had, there was these holy directions, three holy directions that were given regarding the Ark of the Covenant. First, we see the design. We see this in Exodus 25, 17 through 18. The Ark of the Covenant was to be very detailed, be very meticulous. God had a plan for it. I have a picture up there for you of what the Ark looked like. Okay, this is an artist's renditions, but it was supposed to look really fancy. Okay, better than that, it was supposed to stand out. It was to be made of gold, showing that it's royal, it's valuable. This isn't just something you picked up at the Dollar Tree store, right? This is something that took time to get the gold ready, to get it perfect. And then once you have the gold, you have this, this mercy seat that's there. And the mercy seat was, was used as this way to separate the presence of God from the people. It, it kind of closed the presence of God and it was used uh, for sacrifices. We get into that a lot more. But we also have the cherubim that are staying there and they're showing that this is a holy presence of God. And what we see is the people who made the Ark of the Covenant didn't just randomly put this together and say, you know, I think the cherubim look good if you put it here. God laid out in Exodus 25. He said, this is what I want, and this is what you're going to do. And he says it very, very perfectly and meticulously. And God was specific, down to really the measurements and materials. So we got, okay, there's the design. This is what it was supposed to look like. No one was supposed to change it. Also, if you notice, for foreshadowing, there's some two poles on the side. Keep that with you. And then we see the next, there was the design, and then there were the contents of it, what was supposed to be inside of it. And what we see in Hebrews 9, 4, it actually lays it out pretty perfectly for us. It tells us what's supposed to be in there. And it says in Hebrews 9, 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round with, about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, so that's number one, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So it says that the manna that the, the people of the Israelites ate, that was given by God, it's in a golden urn. There's Aaron's rod that was used during the time of Korah's rebellion, and there's the stone tablets from the Ten Commandments. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? What they all were were testimonies to God's provision, saying this is what God has done in the past and how he's provided and this is showing that when God's presence is there, things work. So we see that we have the design, we see that we have the contents, and then the handling. How is it supposed to be moved? You couldn't just lay it there and never move it, right? If we were supposed to move it from place to place, how did we do that? God has a specific way. He said how to do it. Exodus 25, 14 says, And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. There were rings on the side, as you saw in that picture. And poles went through those rings, and then they took the rings, and it was only the Levitical priests who took those, those rings, those poles, put it on their shoulders without touching the ark, and then they would carry it. So what does all of this mean? What it means is David overlooked a detail. He didn't know, or, or no, he, didn't, he didn't take the time to know, is a better way of saying it, of what was the right way to do this. And he chose the cart over the poles. And he chose regular men rather than priests. It doesn't say anything about Levitical priests coming. It says that he got the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Why does this matter? I mean, like Miles, this seems kind of petty. Why is this a whole sermon? At least David cared enough to bring it back. He's doing it even faster and more efficient. You know how much faster you can go on a cart than just putting it on your shoulder and walking? The problem is that David was doing it his own way and not God's way. 
I think I have a picture up here. It kind of illustrates this idea. If trusting your own understanding was a picture. And I kind of like this. It's all this randomly. And I, I thought, that's perfect. Because look at that. They're making this, and they're not following any instructions. And they're saying, I mean, we could just kind of slap things together and put it up, and eventually we make something out of it. But like, what you're making is not what's supposed to be made. When you try to do things on your own understanding, get this, it doesn't work. When you say, I can do this my way, and I got it, and God, don't you understand, I'm doing this for you, let me do it my way, faster, more efficient, I got it, I, I know better. I, 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 I can do it. I can do it my way. And that's what we see David does. He makes the decision to foolishly rush. And then we see his second decision. He fearfully reacts. We see this in verses 6 through 11. We see David fearfully reacts. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what, what is David's response? What, what is happening? And let's set this up. This is where a lot of you probably know what happens in the story. We see verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark. So in verse 6, we see that there, Uzzah is walking behind it and making sure just everything's okay, and the oxen who's, who's carrying it on that new cart they made stumbles just a little bit, and Uzzah says, oh, wait, I can grab it, touches it, boom, he's dead. You're like, Wow, okay, he's gone. He Uzzah instantly, instinctually reacts. He says, I can't let it fall. I can't let it touch that, that unholy ground. And he, he touches it to keep it steady. And sometimes I like looking at children's books, pictures, because I think it helps. But what happens here is, is the oxen stumbles, the cart wobbles. Uzzah goes and says, I got it. He touches it. God strikes him down. Well, I don't know exactly how that happens, but I do know that God saw it happen and said, Uzzah, you've done the wrong thing. And he dies. That's verse 7. He strikes Uzzah down dead. Now, we can look at that and say, well, why, why did that happen? Well, he just touched it. Well, if David knew and if these men knew their scripture, Numbers 4.15 talks about, if you touch these holy items unworthily, not the way the Lord wants, if you touch them, if you're on a holy thing touching something that is holy, you're dead. Now, let's, let's be honest. If you're a normal person reading this passage, like, I, I've thought this. This is me. My first natural reaction to hearing the story is like, well, that doesn't seem entirely fair. I mean, Uzzah, Uzzah was trying to help. Like, it's not even his ark to begin with, necessarily. And he's now taking it away from his home where he was getting blessing. And then he tries to catch and he dies. He was just trying to help keep God's ark safe. And then He's dead. I mean, this was a guy who probably had, had a family and a life. Sometimes we, we don't look and think about the full scope of, of these characters that we're talking about. This is a real guy who had a real life and who really died. And he was gone. And, and there's this question that can come from it. If you continue to let your mind wander, what kind of a God would do that? I mean, what, what, what kind of a God would be, be so angry and, and so heartless and so vindictive and so, so petty and it, and it like rubs you the wrong way? And you hear that and you're like, well, Miles, that's not the right way to think about God. But that's how we so often can be tempted. And today that's how a lot of people view God. They say he's the mean guy in, in the sky that, that has angry wrath upon helpless people that he created. And there's this question that comes, is this really a God I want to serve? I 
I think about that and I say, have I ever asked myself that question? Maybe you're a way better human than I am. I've asked that question. I've asked that question a lot. I've said, Lord, things aren't going the way I want. Should I really serve you? Like, should I really go the way? And maybe you say, oh, that's too harsh. When was the last time you were utterly confused by something the Lord did? You were, you were in a trial and something happened. You said, Lord, why did that happen? That's not fair. I, I don't like that that happened. What did we do to deserve that? It could have been a decision in government. You said, Lord, that didn't go the way we voted for. That didn't go the way. They didn't do the thing we wanted. We're confused. Lord, why are my enemies succeeding? There's psalms about that. But why is there harsh discipline from this? I was just trying to do what you wanted. And it can seem like one thing after another. And let's get from our high and mighty horse and just see that we doubt sometimes. That we, we, we worry sometimes. We question sometimes. And that's what David and if you say, I've never done that, maybe so. But this is a man who's God after God's own heart. And right now, he's seen God provide multiple times, yet he's asking, is this a God I really want to serve? Look at verse 8 with me. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Para-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And verse 11, let's go ahead and read that. And the ark of the Lord continued into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. What we see in verse 8 is David gets angry. He says, how could you, God? I, I was obeying. I was bringing the ark for you. And he actually says in verse 8, he names that place that they were at, Para-Uzzah. And what that means is, is breaking out against Uzzah. And what he's basically saying is, I'm naming this because we want to remember the time when God was really harsh to Uzzah. We want to remember this. And in verse 9, he asks, he says, do I even want this ark? I was coming to bring it and put it into to Jerusalem, but do I even want this anymore? In verse 10, he apparently answers his own question, says, no, I'm going to leave it with this other guy, Obed-Edom. I'm not entirely sure who he is, but, but David knew him. And he leaves it there, and he places the ark in his house. And, you know, I read that, and I, I come kind of surprised by David's reaction. But, but he, he's a man after God's own heart, right? But never, ever think that means he's perfect. David was human, and David was troubled. And what David actually did here is he placed God on trial. And he said, and he doubted, he said, is, is God, is he really good? And I don't know if you've ever done this, but, but we, we, we often try to, to put God on trial. And we, we see that he's done all this good. And we can go through and say, he did this, he did this, he did this. He, he helped me conquer the giant. He helped me through Saul. He helped me through all of these things. He gave me the kingdom that he promised He's done all of this good, but one thing doesn't go the way he expected or that we expected. And what we automatically assume so often is that when the thing didn't go the way I wanted, I automatically assume God didn't deliver, and then I blame him. And I say, I can't possibly be in the wrong. God, you didn't do it the right way. You know, here's why I think David's problem was, is that he became too familiar with God. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a deep relationship there, 
But I believe that what we see in David is that God just became the same old thing. He's that guy in the sky who helps us. And he forgot that this is the holy Lord of hosts. We see that in verse 2. The name, the Lord of hosts. He is the I am. He is beyond all, the only one deserving of glory. The one who set David up and has provided for David. And I see myself doing this. This is something we fall into as Christians, that we become too familiar with the holiness and sovereignty and true, true awesomeness of God. That when I'm worshiping, when it's time to worship, I get distracted because I have other things on my mind. But I, I, don't, want, I don't bow down before him and actually worship him. I get really distracted. Or, or that even when I'm praying, I don't know if you've done this before. I'm not saying you're a horrible person if you've done it. But we become so familiar that even when I pray before my meals, I say it really fast because I, I don't think about how I'm coming before the presence of a mighty, holy God. I just want my food, so I say it really fast or I forget it. And I remember I had it in my mouth and it's like really hot and I'm trying to say the prayer really fast. Right? Or, or that... I'm reading the Bible, but I'm reading it just to get it done with. And I'm not thinking this is the words of the holy God who gave it to me. Or, or, or I take God's name in vain. I just kind of use it really flippantly. You say, well, Christians shouldn't do that. Yeah, that they do. What I'm saying is, is that I think we get really, really close to becoming too familiar with God. Let's say that differently. I think we do become too familiar with God. And that's not his fault. But I think we just kind of take these things for granted. Because, like, well, we always come to church. We always sing. We always get to pray. But when you realize that this is the God who, in Isaiah 6, is called holy, holy, holy. And they're not just saying it three times because they forgot. They're saying this is the ultimate peak of holiness. Nothing comes close to this. You don't come close to this. And God's point in striking down Uzzah is saying that this Ark of the Covenant, my presence, is no mere rabbit's foot. And it's not about your way, David, but it's about honoring and glorifying the one who is holy. God is holy, and he will never, ever compromise his holiness. I think about if he didn't strike Uzzah down. If he said, oh, oops, you made a mistake. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. You know, that, that just happens. It's just my holiness. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. We can overlook it this one time. And then you continue to compromise on it. Just that one time where there was a little leeway. God struck down Uzzah to make a point. God is holy and demands to be treated as such. And isn't it so much better to serve a God who, who, who is holy than a God who isn't holy? Imagine if we were serving just some God who did whatever he wanted, didn't follow any standard of holiness, and that was just as imperfect as us. That wouldn't be a God I wanted to follow. The God who is above all is holy and different and set apart. And he is the I am. And this I am loves us. But because he loves us, he has standards. All right, bring this back. David reacts in fearful judgment. But God's holiness must be established. But there's this quick little detail we see in verse 11, this hidden detail. We see the blessing of the house of Obed-Edom. See the verse 11. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The, house, the ark of the covenant was left with Obed-Edom. And what starts happening is his house keeps getting blessed. And David sees this. And what we can see from the story is we look at the big picture like, oh, Uzzah died. That doesn't 
necessarily seem right. Let's focus on Uzzah, but we don't see that this is what happens. This blessing happens to those who honor the presence of God. We see this little detail that Obed-Edom was blessed and that David notices this and we see a change. Things start to shift. We see him start to make a different decision and David starts looking at the details. And the final decision he makes is that he faithfully follows. He was foolishly rushing, then he was fearfully reacting, but now he's faithfully following. Look with me at verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that pertaineth unto him, because of the ark of God. David hears this, and he says, I want the blessing. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And, and what we see from that is that he notices the house is being blessed, and he says, I'm bringing that back. And I actually read that, and you're like, well, what's different? Like, he, he went at the beginning to get the ark and bring it back, and it didn't work. Now it seems like he's going to get the ark again and bring it back. But where's the details? Well, that's why we have to go to First Chronicles. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, okay, to First Chronicles. This is cool. I love this. This is a detail that only Scripture could, could supplement and show. Look with me at First Chronicles chapter 15. Chapter 15. And we see that there's this hidden detail. It's not so hidden at all, but it changes kind of the scope of everything. It changes what this is about. And we see it in First Chronicles 15, starting in verse 1. And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. So he first, now he's pitching a tent for it. He's following the right way. And then verse 2, then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. What I want you to see in those verses is that now he says, Levites, you're the only one that can do it. Not these, these, these warriors that I took. Not, not the Uzzah in Ohio. Levites. And then look with me at verse 13. We'll skip down a little bit. And we continue on. For because ye did not at the first, Lord our God made a breach upon us, that we sought him. Oh, sorry, I skipped down to verse 13. Go with me to verse, verse 12. This will give us more context. Verse 12. And said unto him, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, Lord our God made a breach upon us, that we sought him not after the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. What was different? is that he got Levites to carry it, and they carried it on poles. And you're like, okay, cool. No, in a word, David obeyed this time. He did what God told him to do, and he faithfully followed. God said, David obeyed. And he did what he was supposed to do. And a commentator said it perfectly. I like how he said it. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. We see in verse 13 that he, he actually sacrifices to the Lord. And, and we're going back to 2 Samuel 6 now. We, we see that he, he, in verse 13, sacrifices to the Lord after they, they take a few steps. He doesn't not out of ritual sake, but all about a relationship. 
He's saying, God, this is, this is your way, your will, not mine. We're giving the honor and glory to you. And we see that David gets excited. And in verse 14, he's dancing, he's hopping for joy. There, there's dancing in the Bible, he's excited, right? Verse 15, the people are rejoicing, people are pumped because the Ark of the Covenant, which means God's blessing, the Holy of Holies, the I Am is there. And what God says is he wants his people to follow his detailed directions found in his word. You know, we see in scripture that there's a lot of times when things transition, when, when power transitions, that people start seeing how much they can push the boundaries. We see in, in Nabab and Abihu, when the tabernacle was bent, they actually entered the sanctuary unworthily. You know what happened to them? They didn't follow his directions. They died. And then we see this man named Achan who went and didn't follow God's directions and stole what he was not supposed to steal, died. We see going to the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira at the start of the church age. They go and lie about an offering. They died. We see Saul in 1 Samuel 15 that he didn't obey what the Lord told him to do. He was supposed to go kill everything. He was supposed to kill even, even the, the sheep, the lambs, everything. Get it gone. But he only went and killed, killed the warriors and kept the good resources. And because he disobeyed and didn't do what God wanted him to do, right after that, God says, well, you're not going to be king anymore. I'll keep you alive. But you didn't obey, and you're not going to be the king. And what am I saying from this? That when you disobey God, there's punishment that comes when you try to follow your own way. What these men I just listed, what David even did, is they had wrong actions that came from a wrong heart. Let's go back to our key verse that we're keeping with us through this whole series. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And what we see is that the Lord's looking at the heart of a man who obeys. David fell, just in, David fell into disobedience just as we do. But when he started obeying, when his heart started looking to the Lord, and the Lord saw his heart change, things changed. So some of you are like, okay, so what, what's the message? What do I take with me? All right, okay, we learned about the Ark of the Covenant. Woo, exciting. All right, if we have the Ark of the Covenant, I'll make sure to put poles in it. All right, and then when we carry it, we'll be good. What does this apply to my everyday life? Well, it applies really well. But when we think about this and we learn about the Ark of the Covenant, it seems like so back then, like that was a while ago, like what, what does that do now? Well, I want us to see number one is that God still has the same standard of holiness and he will never, ever compromise the standard. And you know what I realized look, doing this? I'm like, I can't meet that standard. God is holy. I'm unholy. How in the world are we supposed to meet that standard? That's where this really cool thing that you've heard of before called the gospel comes in that says that God and Jesus came and, and how Uzzah died because he was unholy and didn't meet that standard and how we don't meet this standard. Christ comes in and he dies on our behalf because he's the only one that could meet the standard of holiness, that standard of perfection, so that we could be made holy and blameless before him. There's this really cool connection in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Let's look at it. I think we have it up here. Perfect. Just, just focus on this for a minute. I think it's a great connection. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Here with verse 13. 
For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, he was the holy one, he met the standard of holiness, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What this verse is saying so beautifully, the only way the Bible, only the Bible could say it this awesome, is that God is holy, he requires holiness, and Christ met that standard, went in and made the ultimate perfect sacrifice, that his blood provides the purification for our sins. Now we have hope. We, we don't have to, have to deal with the Ark of the Covenant. We have, some, we have Christ, which is so much better. We see is that God cares about the big picture. And that big picture is that we are to believe on the gospel. And what has happened is that Christ has come to save us from our sins. And that we can have hope forevermore. And that holiness, man, if you want to meet that standard of holiness, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it. And us banging together, all the church came together and said, all right, I'm going to grab Brother Dave, I'm going to grab Todd, and we're all going to come together. We'll together find a way to be holy. Won't work. Sorry. It's not going to work. It's only by Christ and his goodness, his perfection, his love, that we, only by the blood of Christ alone, that we can become holy through him. So my, my, my plea is if you haven't believed on him and you, you, you are still in the state of unholiness, the state of sin, you can be saved by believing and calling upon his name. So he cares about the big picture. But he also cares about the details. And those details point back to the big picture. And he knows the little details add up to a big picture. He requires us to fully obey his word. Say it again. He requires us to fully obey his word. Not pick out what we like. Like, okay, I turn to Psalm. I really like Psalm 69. But I, Ezekiel confuses me, so I threw Ezekiel out because I don't need that. And I just pick what's, what I understand, what I like, what's easy, what's convenient, what I agree with. No, no, no. What he says is, if God said it, we do it. You know, that can sound kind of harsh in our, our politically correct culture today. But, but we see that God has this standard, and he says, follow the standard because I love you and I have a standard I want you to follow. God knows that obedience to his directions provide joy and peace and hope and contentment. Now, I was thinking of this with the whole idea of details. Like, looking at the small details, God is really good at doing that because, like, in all honesty, I'm a small detail. I think I'm really important. I'm not. Yet God cares so much about me cares about you, and he cares about how all these big details are going to be, all these small details are going to come together in the, in the church, and, and he's bringing them to heaven, and God cares. He cares so much that he sent his son to die. And he says, when you love and obey me, I'm showing you that it helps, it works, that everything changes, that you see how these small details point to a big, big picture where God loves and God cares. You know, if you aren't obeying God in the small things of your life, the everyday, you won't obey him in the big things. Sometimes we wait, like, I'll obey when the time comes. The time is now. Obedience requires full allegiance to God's direction. We're almost done, but Christian, hear me loud and clear. We must be fully surrendered and wholly dedicated to what our Lord commands. 
You know, sometimes people say, well, Lord, that's just legalism. You're just saying you have to do all these rules for God to love you. No, what I'm saying is, is that I'm saying that we, we become so struck with the absolute majesty of our God that we can't help but serve him being fully surrendered. Because I say he's so amazing, why would I not want to serve him and give everything for him? Because I can only find true joy when I'm following God's will with total obedience. I don't know if you're here today and you're just giving partial obedience what I've learned in giving only partial obedience is that partial obedience is still disobedience. Me saying, I did, I did just enough. No, I didn't do the full thing. It's disobedience. I don't know if you're here and you, you've said, I've given the Lord my life. I've, I'm, I'm saved. I know that, Miles. I got it. But you haven't given over him the details of your day. You haven't given over him. You've given your life, but, but not your day. You, you haven't had time with him in a really long time. And you haven't actually said, I have all these details in my life that I need help with. You haven't actually given him over those details. Maybe, maybe, maybe God's directing you and you're saying, man, I, I've, I've been a good Christian. I, I, I've tried to check all the boxes, but you haven't actually surrendered to him and he's been prompting you to go do something. He's saying, this is what I've called you to do. And you're saying, but God, I'm being in my little nice Christian bubble. And I'm, I'm doing good things. But he's told you to go do this. He's told you to go share the gospel here. He's told you to go minister over there. He's told you to go do something, and you haven't surrendered. Or maybe you're, you're the person that says, and I fall in this category, of I'll do it when it matters, but it's not my problem at the moment. You might be saying that with salvation, I'll do it when it matters. It matters today. I'll obey when it matters. It matters today. I'll, I'll give full allegiance. No, today is the day. In order to grow, we must obey the full detailed directions of God. Last, last thing. There's this quote that you've heard before called The Devil's in the Details. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. And what it actually comes to, I did a little research, and what it means is that, that the devil's in the details and, and trying to destroy. And what it actually comes from is a philosopher named Frederick Nietzsche. And what he's saying here is that someone is out to get you. And what he actually does is he twists the details of uh, the, the quote that God is in the details. He takes that. He says, no, the devil is in the details. And there's someone always out to get you. And, and don't fail or mess up. Get all your details in a row. And what he's actually saying, because Frederick Nietzsche, if you know anything about him, he didn't like the idea of God. And he thought the idea of God was just this, this con social construct that people made to just make them feel miserable and feel like they're doing everything wrong. What I really like to think and meditate on is that God is in the details and in the big picture. And that he is holy, he is merciful, he is sovereign, he's not against you. Sometimes it feels like all things are happening. You're like, God, are you against me? Like, are we on the same side? You know what I'm going through? But he's there. And he cares. And what he says to do is listen. Maybe, maybe we just need to listen. We've been too, too busy trying to do it on our own. We just need to listen and obey in the small and big. And when you do that, you see him work. You see him change. You see him change you. And you see him provide joy. I like David in the end of this story. What's he doing? He's jumping for joy. He's excited. He's not, he's not bashful about it. He's like, that's my God. And I'm on the same side as my God. And he cares about me. And he's in Jerusalem now. And everything's actually going really well because I obeyed him. And now I can have hope and joy in my life. Fully obeying God. Best place to be. Let's pray.